From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is away this week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. At the University of Missouri on Monday, a skirmish over media access in a much larger battle over racial discrimination. Just a hundred miles from Ferguson, student protests led University President Tim Wolf to resign. Wolf was under fire for not addressing racially charged incidents on campus. Black students complained of repeated racial slurs. A swastika was found in a dorm. Some say there's been racial tension on the predominantly white campus for years. For a week, an African-American graduate student named Jonathan Butler staged a hunger strike that he said would only end with Wolf's resignation. Also Monday, an altercation. You need to go. Yep. Students, uh, can you tell him how much you don't have a right to, to take go? our photos. No. A student photographer, Tim Tai, on assignment for ESPN, explained his rights as the protesters refereed access to the university quad, calling it a media-free safe space and linking arms to keep reporters out. This is the First Amendment that protects your right to stand here, protects mine. The same video showed a communications professor calling for muscle to keep reporters out. She's since apologized, but too late. Condemnation of the assault on press freedom was swift and fierce. Stephen Thrasher, a writer at large for The Guardian U.S., reported from the campus, as a journalist and an African-American, first he was stunned, and then he got it. The thing that was really shocking for me that I started hearing were these chants that I've heard. I've covered Occupy Wall Street. I've covered Black Lives Matter over the past few years. And I heard them using these chants that have typically been deployed against the police. Back up, back up. We want freedom, freedom. And they were directing it towards the media. I thought, what is it that they are protesting against? On the one hand, I realized they were protesting media that has misrepresented what they've been doing in the Black Lives Matter movement, particularly in Ferguson, which is not far away. And when I thought about the relationship with the police, protesters often talk about how in the Black Lives Matter movement that there is a systemic racism that pervades policing. It's not about good cops and bad cops. It's not about white cops or black cops. They're saying that the whole system is racist. And I felt like they were also saying the media is systemically racist. So it doesn't matter whether I'm a good journalist or a bad journalist or a black journalist. They are very distrustful of the system itself. Right. I can see that. But this is a public university. This protest was taking place in a public space. You wrote about a sense of privilege. You're used to being able to walk wherever you want when you're covering a demonstration. You noted that, of course, you wouldn't go to a concert in a public park and demand to be let backstage. But is that really the right parallel? I mean, we're talking about basic access. Is that privilege? Why I think that this was so hard for media is, one, I mean, we don't like to be told we can't go into some place. That's fine. But also, I don't think a lot of media professionals are used to having the terms of any interaction with young black people dictated to them. You know, they're not used to a young black person saying, this is what's going to happen, and this is how we're going to interact with each other. They had hashtags on their signs, so they had a real sense that they could get media out without the media. They could kind of go around us. They kept asking people to email them. They didn't want uh, students sort of giving interviews off the cuff. And they just wanted a space that they could talk without media being right in their face where they were sleeping for several days. These protesters are incredibly sophisticated and intelligent. They understand systemic racism very well, and they read media through that lens. So they don't think it's necessarily about one person or the other. This is completely my speculation, but I think one of the things they very specifically did not want by that safe space is they didn't want a camera finding one person goofing off and then having that be the image of their movement. I mean, I think one reason why they, they turn away from this kind of media is because they see it as reductive when they think, well, I could be tweeting with people every seven seconds. Why do I need to just have one quote that's going to stand for me and have myself judged by that one thing? Knowing all too well how the system works. Since the confrontation, the protesters have circulated flyers about First Amendment rights and the two professors shown in the video yelling, have apologized why this note of reconciliation? One, they didn't want the story to just become about that. And they got what they wanted. They went through this incredibly difficult thing and they got it. 
This is the first protest in the year and a half I've been covering Black Lives Matter that was organized around black joy. And somehow we've made a way to talk about all these problems with the media. But overall, from the moment that it came out that Wolf was resigning, there was dancing, there was singing. And having covered the deaths of Michael Brown in Ferguson, of Freddie Gray in Baltimore, I've traveled around the country to a lot of these sites. It's always about death. It's always about sadness. And here they actually had a victory, and there was a real joy in it. Mm-hmm. In a column on the Washington Post site, the journalist Terrell Germain Starr wrote, quote, The black community distrusts the news media because it has failed to cover black pain fairly. How do you create, as a reporter, to an audience that would never have experienced it, a pathway to understanding black pain? It's a very difficult thing to do. You have to start by listening to people, by giving black people the benefit of the doubt. There's something that happens so often around when a black man is killed. The first assumption in media and popular discourse is that he did something to deserve it. You know, we saw it with the young black woman who was hurt in the South Carolina classroom when she was slammed by the cop. There's this, oh, what was she doing? She was on her phone. Well, he must have had reason to throw her onto the ground. The young black girl outside the McKinney pool, oh, she spoke back to the officer to tell him, I'm walking on my way home. Well, she shouldn't have said anything and and she would be okay. And you see it in, in Mizzou as well. Well, why are these kids so sensitive? Why can't they take being called these names? And you have to have some people who look like the people they're covering. I know this from being the only person in the room and many times in my career. It's a hard case to make to your colleagues, and it's not easy work. It's it's work that takes a long time. It's work that often can't be fit very simply into, into a short story. And the story of black pain is so often just commodified and exploited. Another sub-story this week has been that Jonathan Butler seems to come from a well-to-do family. That's been used to try to discredit him because the underpinning of this country is that black people should not be operating from a place of education or power or something other than pain. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke. Stephen Thrasher is a writer at large for The Guardian U.S., The rest of this hour is about how empathy and emotion generally is created, tracked, and commodified by the media. We heard Stephen Thrasher talk about the challenge of conveying black pain to people who haven't got a clue. Jeremy Balenson develops virtual reality technology and describes what could be a way. Our virtual mirror demo. So when you walk up to this mirror and I'm a white male and you spend about four minutes moving around and seeing yourself in the mirror and it looks like you and somebody hits a button and now you're a woman of color and you look down at your arms and you see that your skin has changed color and that your body is female and wow, it really feels like it's me. We then turn around and there's another person in VR. He's a white male. He's about eight inches taller than I am and he physically gets into my space, says some fairly horrific things to me, and I get to experience what it's like to face not only discrimination, but to be threatened by someone who's a white male, which I previously was. It's a really powerful experience. Last weekend, the New York Times gave its readers the chance to drop into the worlds of children displaced by wars in Syria, South Sudan, and Ukraine. With the help of a cardboard viewer delivered to home subscribers, you could stand inside a rubble-filled building, a cucumber field, beneath a plane that dropped food from the sky. The transportive device that landed on 1.2 million doorsteps is called Google Cardboard. It's a folded piece of card- cardboard that you slide your smartphone into. Your smartphone splits the screen so you can see in stereo. The phone has a sensor called an accelerometer that can track your head movements. So as you move your head around in the physical world, the phone slash cardboard updates what you should be seeing. So it truly does feel like mental transportation. We call this presence. You feel like you're in a different place. When asked why the Times made this effort, Jake Silverstein, the editor of its magazine and a leader of this project, talked about empathy. You can feel completely immersed in an environment. And what it does is it gives a viewer a sense of empathic connection to the people and the places in a way, frankly, that uh, no other media I've experienced can do. 
VR expert Jeremy Balinson agrees. As founding director of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford University, he's been exploring the power of virtual reality to foster empathy for almost 15 years. The first experiment we ran in the year 2003 was about ageism. So it turns out if you take a 20-something and you ask her or him what it's going to be like to be 65 years old, they've got some pretty harsh stereotypes. They say they're going to be slow, they're going to be boring. What we did is we had young people age in the mirror. We then had them participate in a job interview with another person who was networked in virtual reality with them, and it became very clear that the subject was not going to get the job because... This person was old. And what our experiments have determined over the last 15 years is that when you embody someone who experiences prejudice, when you're forced to walk a mile in that person's shoes, this is an effective way to later on reduce behaviors that are consistent with prejudice. Now, it turns out the type of studies that we do, this full immersion, track your body, become someone else, this simply isn't possible to go at scale right now. With today's technology, you can be more of a passive viewer using something called spherical video. The thing that we experienced if we got the New York Times box. And the home run question that everybody's asking is, can these lower immersive experiences cause the same type of empathy that we've demonstrated in the lab, we don't know the answer to that I knew you were going to say that. We don't know whether simply physically placing yourself in the same field, in the same desert, in the same swamp as somebody else can bring you really closer to their experience. But you have had some experiments that are a little closer to what the New York Times did insofar as you've put people in compromised environments. So we just started a project called Empathy at Scale. A year ago, a woman from the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation came to the lab, saw our empathy research, and she said, Jeremy, we believe in your lab when you can become someone else You're going to experience empathy, but no one's going to have a lab as fancy as mine in the next year or two. So in the meantime, when people receive things like this New York Times application, is that going to work? And so we've just begun a massive project where we are going out to thousands of people and we're having them put on the head-mounted display and they don't get to do full body transfer, but they become homeless. They start in their apartment and... They find out that they lose their job. They have to look around their apartment and with their head movement, choose items they're going to sell to try to make their rent. The landlord throws them out of their apartment. They're then living in their car, trying to do their nightly grooming routine in a really crowded car, which is difficult. Then a police officer steps up to the car with a flashlight and tells them they can't live in their car and they've got to leave. And slowly over time, this person ends up on the streets. And the question that we're asking, Brooke, is... Is it going to work on a large sample of people, a diverse sample of people, all ages, different socioeconomic status, and really try to answer the question, does it work on everybody? How long does this effect last? And what are the great uses of virtual reality empathy? Has it been posited theoretically that it might actually numb people to experiences if they can simply take off their glasses and walk away from them? The way to think about virtual reality is it's similar to an actual experience. So if you believe that hours and hours of a certain type of experience per day in the physical world will numb you, we have preliminary data that shows virtual reality experiences, if repeated often, will have a similar effect. This technology is intended to be manipulative, to influence your behavior. Do you worry that maybe this is... Too much virtual reality. It depends on what we do with it. Yes, I truly believe that when virtual reality is done right, it is an experience. The brain has not yet evolved to differentiate a compelling virtual reality experience from a physical one. So it's up to us to design experiences that we are comfortable with people doing. My opinion is we shouldn't design experiences for virtual reality that you wouldn't be willing to do in the physical world. Jeremy, thank you very much. Thank you. Jeremy Balinson is founding director of Stanford University's Virtual Human Interaction Lab. 
we can also be transported by a simple photograph, like the tragic image of Ilan Kurdi, the three-year-old boy, a refugee, lying dead in the surf. Is one tragic picture able to do what countless hours of news coverage and gallons of ink have failed to do so far? That is, wake us up? The New York Times wrote that the photograph, published in September, has forced Western nations to confront the consequence of a collective failure. Did it? The European Journalism Observatory tracked the European coverage of the migrant crisis in the month of September. It looked at the reporting around three key moments. The Ilan Kurdi photo, Germany's introduction of border controls, and the EU summit on the migrant crisis. Carolyn Lees, one of the report's authors, describes what happened. Western European newspapers became much more sympathetic towards the migrants and refugees immediately after the photographs of the drowned boy, Island Kurdi. But the surprising thing was within one week, most of the newspapers had reverted to their original editorial positions. It was so quick. And then by the end of September, the coverage had dropped completely about the refugee crisis and they'd all become less positive than they were even before the Alan Kurdi photos were published. You looked at the Czech Republic, Germany, Italy, Latvia, Poland, Portugal, the UK, and Ukraine. Was there a regional difference in how they responded? Yes, there was, interestingly enough. Ukraine, Latvia, Poland, and the Czech Republic, of the 12 newspapers that we studied in those four countries, only three of them published the photos of Ilan Kurdi. And when they did, it was normally in a negative context. For example, one of them, which was actually the most liberal of all the 12, I think, only published the photo on page 11 and with the title, The Photo That Has Shaken Europe. They wrote a story about the European reaction to it rather than about the boy. Why was there only a short-term reaction? Why didn't people care longer? after they saw the picture of Island Kurdi, which seems to have a direct channel right into your guts. It didn't take long for newspapers to start looking for a new angle. They want to publish what's new. And I think the four days or so that they gave Island Kurdi's story such resonance, I think some newspapers would argue that was too long and they had to move on. Maybe it made a difference in some people's minds, I'm sure people will always remember those pictures. I'm sure it will be a turning point. How can you argue that these pictures will be a turning point when you demonstrated with your study that it wasn't, that the tide of coverage and public perception has turned against the migrants, and this was merely a blip that ultimately proved to have no lasting impact? So it can't be a turning point. I mean, we can keep saying that, but it's almost a a reflex. It didn't make a difference. Very quickly in the UK, the newspapers actually turned on the Kurdi family and even accused the father of being a people smuggler. So it went from the national mourning for the little boy to, hang on a minute, this family weren't genuine refugees. And that happened within four days. Yes, there was a short-term blip in our attention. We stopped, we were sad, and perhaps we even felt empathy towards the refugees because we suddenly saw them looking more like us. By the end of September, we didn't want to know again. The British paper, The Independent, published this headline. If these extraordinarily powerful images of a dead Syrian child washed up on a beach don't change Europe's attitudes to refugees, what will? I mean, is the answer nothing? If the media reflects what people want, then the signs are not hopeful. The issue, I think, has largely gone away. It may take another big event or a big tragedy, sadly, before the newspapers will become engaged again. Carolyn, thank you very much. Thank you. Carolyn Lees is the editor of the European Journalism Observatory. Coming up, we spoke to the co-founder of the site, Upworthy. What happened next will blow your mind. This is On The Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. It's pointless to talk about emotion and the media without mentioning Upworthy. The three-year-old website is built on curating and creating content that moves its audience enough to share its stories on social media. And they've got it down. But the site is also reviled by many for pioneering a brand of sensationalist headline that exploded in popularity across the web. Upworthy-style headlines became so ubiquitous, in fact, that Facebook altered its algorithm to suppress such clickbaity content, which many say slashed Upworthy's traffic. Earlier this year, Upworthy co-founder Peter Keckley offered a mea culpa. In January, I apologized for unleashing a sort of clickbait monster on the internet. Whereas we were using this newfangled technique to get people to care about healthcare system and income inequality, we then saw a thousand sites spring up that were using very similar sounding headlines to get people to care about cute kittens and crazy dance moves. You couldn't go on your Facebook feed without seeing one of these headlines. Just so the listeners know, what is this clickbait monster? Here's an upworthy headline. This amazing kid just died, and what he left behind was one-tacular. 17 million page views. See why we have an absolutely ridiculous standard of beauty in just 37 seconds. 11.8 million page views. And this is one of my favorites. Nine out of ten Americans are completely wrong about this mind-blowing fact. 6.3 million page views. (laughs) There are... Examples there that are very curiosity-inducing and also tell you exactly what you're going to see. So, for example, in the here's a ridiculous standard of beauty in 37 seconds, you get to see a model retouched in Photoshop in a quick video that's really striking and powerful. The one that you mentioned of 9 out of 10 Americans don't know this (laughs) mind-blowing fact That's clickbait. You have absolutely no idea what's on the other side of that link. That worked really well, but was actually a disservice to our readers and our community. So that's exactly the kind of stuff that we've stopped doing. For the record, on the other side of that link was a great seven-minute video of John Green dissecting the healthcare system. All right, so you've probably heard that the reason people enjoy quote-unquote free healthcare in Australia and the UK and Canada, etc., etc., is that they pay higher taxes. In fact, in the United States, we spend more tax money per capita on healthcare than Germany, Australia, the United Kingdom, or Canada. And in exchange for those taxes, you get no healthcare. You know, that piece of media that we drew all that attention to, we felt very proud of. But over time, we realized it's much better just to write a compelling headline, but something that actually tells the story. But they still have that familiar upworthy cadence. Some on the site right now, this director wants you to know the superhero in his movie is pansexual. Here's why it matters. Or a giant corporation lied about science and got caught by their own employees. Burn. You know, the thing about clickbait that is not good is when you're actually misleading people or not giving people enough information to figure out what's really going on. That's a thing that we've clearly turned the page on. The idea of writing in an interesting voice, telling people why they should care, that's not something that we want to change. And the more important the story is, I think the more serious the weight is on our shoulders to make them very, very interesting to large numbers of people because it matters to our society that people are tuned into issues. And by interesting, I think you're talking about engendering emotion. And you've said that you track your stories based on emotion. We've looked closely at the emotions that our stories leave people with. And we found that Emotions that make you lean forward, stand up, want to do something, whether that's inspiration or awe or excitement or whether it's outrage or disgust, 
both of those sets of emotions lead to action. And emotions where you end a story and you feel confused, depressed, disempowered, sad, that tends to lead to a lot less interaction. So you try to avoid leaving people with those emotions. Yeah. It doesn't mean that we don't talk about very difficult issues. We just try to figure out how to talk about difficult and challenging issues in some sort of hopeful fashion. Leaving them feeling like there is a chance that things can be better is a really powerful way to get them to continue to engage with the hardest issues. So how do you know when you're succeeding? What's your metric? People sharing our stories. We think that keeps us honest as we're doing a service to our community of readers and viewers and, of course, helps our stories spread throughout the Internet. What about action? Can you measure that? We've never measured actions in any sort of systematic way, but we've been delighted to see that when a writer or a producer will include some call to action sort of offhandedly at the end of the story, it can often lead to incredible action. We recently told a story about a pizza shop in Philadelphia that has a great pay-it-forward program to help give free meals to the homeless. We don't always have a chance to come in and get fresh hot food whenever we can. And for people to donate money and, you know, towards slices of pizza for us like, really made a change in Philadelphia. After our video went viral, I think about $10,000 of additional slices were, were donated to the homeless in Philadelphia. Not to dump cold water on this, but emotion is the business model that you've based Upworthy on. Well, now we're partnering with brands to figure out how to help them tell their stories in really genuine, empathetic ways. Last year, we partnered with Whirlpool, an appliance company that was aspiring to be a lot more than that. What was it aspiring to be? The products that Whirlpool makes are used every day by people who are caring for their families. So we found this wonderful family in Queens. The mother, the grandmother, and the son lived at home at the same time and told a really great, simple story of their life that focused on this idea of care at home. What I'm most grateful for that my mom does for me is just being a mom. I feel like I'm the glue that holds it all together. She cooks. She washes my clothes. Making sure that the, the bank gets the mortgage and making sure that my mom's doctor's appointments are scheduled. And our users loved it as well. You know, even though it's funded by a brand, it has a Whirlpool logo on the end of it, it's part of an ad campaign. Still to us, what we look for is a great story that we're proud to tell. Some critics have called the emotional engagement that you encourage superficial, you know, slacktivism. I think the slacktivism critique is based on a pretty big misconception about the world where there are a million people who are about to call their senator or take to the streets, but then they happened across a great story that satisfied them emotionally and so they decided to cancel those plans. <laughs> I don't think that happens. There are people who are busy, overwhelmed, just living their life, and I think if they happen across a story that makes them connect with something larger than themselves, that's a great outcome. We think that the role of media in the world is to actually make society function more effectively. You know, there are a bunch of great institutions focused on sort of the accountability journalism part of that, rooting out corruption, which we think is incredibly valuable. We think there's another thing rooted in emotional storytelling, which is actually building empathy within society. But to actually care about somebody on the other side of the country from a totally different worldview than yours is really hard. And we think that great empathetic storytelling can actually bridge that gap. Peter, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Brooke. Peter Keckley is a co-founder of Upworthy. Upworthy may have reigned in its headline tactics, but the site's empathy-centric focus is still a draw. Brian Boyer, the visuals editor for NPR, also feels emotion is the key to reaching audiences. The problem is... They can't measure that by counting unique viewers and clicks, which is why he and his team are working on a new system of metrics they call CareBot. CareBot seeks to measure how much time is spent reading a post and how much it's shared on social media in an attempt to learn whether you cared. NPR's goal, Boyer says, is to create content that connects. I briefly worked at ProPublica, and impact there is getting a bill passed in the U.S. Congress. And then I worked at Chicago Tribune, and impact there was, you know, getting a governor thrown into jail. 
Impact here is different. You know, impact at NPR, we do some investigations, but accountability journalism isn't our bread and butter. It's not everything we do every day. You know, we do this journalism because we believe the world could be a better place, right? Mm -hmm. And for us, empathy is impact. Empathy is impact. For your team or for NPR? Well, I can't speak for all of NPR. This is a small group within the newsroom, and we're sort of experimenting. But for us, I think it's twofold. One, the medium we work in has a certain empathy-generating power, and so we feel like that's something we should be trying to harness. But then, in general, at NPR, our business model is sort of wonderful in that our business model is love. But Hallmark's business model is pretty much based on love. Love to what end? The end being um, people becoming uh, members of our family, people becoming donating listeners to their local member stations. Mm-hmm. It seems a little circular. You want <laughs> people to feel so that they'll become members so that you can get more people to feel. How does this make the world a better place? If someone feels more empathy towards someone they've never met, whether it's in you know, the south side of Chicago or if it's in Yemen, they will um, you know, be better people. I think a, a more clear model or clear way to think of our work is like other mission-driven organizations. We're a lot more like a church than we are like, um, like some other business. Hmm. NPR member station members are much more like people tithing um, than anything else. Might putting stories through a care filter change the kinds of stories that are produced? You start pushing resources to the emotional stuff. This is a zero-sum game. It moves away from stuff that may be even more important but less emotional. You know, I, I love a good technical data-driven story, but I still think it can be written in such a way that is engaging. That said, we'll probably find that we'll have different measurements that are better tuned to certain kinds of stories. A chart post maybe is best to look at this way. A photo-driven post is best to look at another way. I think one of the problems we have is we currently only have one number or very few numbers like page views or unique visitors. And we ought to have a much more nuanced set of ways to measure how we do things. So you're not concerned that finding a new metric will influence editorial decisions in a way that might serve the public interest, but not necessarily the public good? No. What I'm concerned with is we're currently measuring things that don't really matter, and we ought to be trying to measure things that matter more to us. What you choose to measure and what you choose to celebrate influences what you do, and we are hoping to influence what we do, hopefully for the better, but we just need to be mindful that we can't just blindly follow these numbers. This project hopefully will, will never end, that we'll always be tuning these things and, and getting away from the rather blunt, easy, raw numbers that, frankly, currently infect how we all work. Brian, thank you very much. Thank you. Brian Boyer is the visuals editor for NPR. But Twitter doesn't just want you to feel. It wants you to feel good. Last week, Twitter replaced its icon for favorites, the star, with a heart to signify likes. This was a week after Twitter announced weak quarterly earnings. The heart is intended to attract new users. Emily Bell is a columnist at The Guardian and director of the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. She really doesn't heart the heart. The day after they made the change, I was scrolling, as I believe nearly all journalists do, through Twitter on a regular basis. And normally I would favorite things, which I want to acknowledge as being important. And suddenly I found that I couldn't face putting a heart against something which I thought was important, but definitely not lovable. For instance, there was a very graphic story about a woman being stoned to death in the Middle East and how it was filmed by men on their mobile phones. And it was a very striking, important, troubling image. And suddenly your options for noting it were a heart, which just didn't seem even vaguely appropriate. So what does this change say about how Twitter wants us to express our emotions? It, it wants us to like more than we did? 
Twitter definitely wants us to like things more. It doesn't really want us to dislike or to be contentious or difficult. I don't entirely blame Twitter here either, because one of the things that they've had a great deal of difficulty with is shaping discourse to be more civil on their platforms. And so I can see why they might reach the conclusion that let's try and change the terms of debate. You know, it's it's almost like the flower in the barrel of the gun during the famous peace protesters. It's like just by dropping a little red heart, can we change the way that discourse works on the platform? The problem for me with it is it's shaping how we feel about things. Social platforms do this. You know, they are very reductive when it comes to the full expression of human emotion because the full expression of human emotion is not very appealing when it comes to making money. Um, it's, <laughs> it's actually positively inhibiting when it comes to commercial growth. So how do you draw attention to terrible events on Twitter without liking them? I think something actually quite subversive has happened in the week, even since I wrote the column, which is that people are just using hearts now as they would have used favourites before. We are now messing with Twitter in the same way that they've messed with us, which serves them right. But I do think it's interesting that we have these incredibly powerful publishing platforms now, and yet we're being steered towards being more positive or more happy, more commercially accessible, as opposed to neutral in how we think about things. So Twitter has narrowed the range of emotions we can express on a platform that was created, at least in part, as a realm of absolute free expression. We as a community of super users in in the media field particularly aggrieved by it because it's trying to shift us to a place that we simply don't want to go. BuzzFeed's slogan, no haters, you know, it's like sort of we want to change journalism by making it lovely. And unfortunately, the world is not that lovely. We ought to acknowledge that. We've never had such large opportunities to connect with the rest of the world. But it has to be done almost through necessity by very, very simple templates and formats. And it does change language. Do you see this basic principle of leveraging our emotions, our empathy, being applied to journalism as well? Well, one thing is certainly for sure, which is the publication and distribution of journalism is increasingly supported primarily on social platforms. So they are shaping the news. Um, And of course, it's important that you can connect difficult stories with an empathetic or an understanding audience. It's absolutely vital for the future of journalism that you can do that. But of course, you have to ask yourselves as editors and writers, are we trying too hard to appeal to people's emotions? Is the language changing in a way that actually stops us from fully analysing the situation in a more dispassionate way. And I think that the thing which is disappointing about the Twitter heart is that it feels as though they would rather we didn't talk about that kind of thing. They would really much rather everything was positive and saleable. Our emotion is a commodity. It has been commodified. Emily, thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke. It was a pleasure. Emily Bell is a columnist at The Guardian and the director of the Tao Center for Digital Media at Columbia University. The heart works in mysterious ways. Coming up, loving what you hate and hating what you love. For fun and profit, this is on the media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. 
You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Last week, when Ben Collins was scrolling online, he was riled by an article in Slate. Spooning is the worst, it read. It's uncomfortable, it's sexist, and it has to stop. But rather than moving on, Collins did what many of us do. He clicked. Then he raged. Collins argued in the Daily Beast that articles designed to infuriate us now drive and despoil the Internet. Talk about unsafe spaces. Instead of maybe art or nuance or moderated thought, we have stuff like this thing that you're doing while you sleep is the worst thing in the world. It is literally sexist and you're offending a gender of people by sleeping in a certain way. But fundamentally, getting people all worked up is what media has long been about. Your refrigerator can kill you, news at 11. (laughs) I think the promise of the internet, though, was that it didn't have to be that. For the first few years, it wasn't really like this until traditional media ad buyers sort of came onto the scene and tried to develop a metric by which to measure everyone. And that metric was this thing called uniques. Raw eyeballs. Whoever clicks on this thing, whoever sees this billboard, counts as somebody who read it and liked it. And that's not necessarily true. So you'll see at places like The Guardian, for example, TMZ as well, there's a big board. They take that one big stat, the raw unique stat, and show you every second of the day how many people are on your website. I bet they have it at the Daily Beast. We do have it. It does loom ominously over my shoulder most of the day. Real problem is these numbers that we have are so inflated. You see websites that say, oh, we have 50 million uniques a month, 50 million people looking at our content. And they are inflated why? They're inflated because it's people who are clicking on it just to see how much they hate it and leave it. (laughs) Now, you started off on this whole tear after the spooning article. What did the spooning article suggest to you? That I was asleep and still doing something wrong. I can't even sleep anymore. (laughs) This is terrible. This is very, very painful for me. And the Internet rewards this sort of thought where maybe one person believes this. And maybe it has some tendrils in reality. But it isn't real. There's no reporting in this thing. If you were to write something a lot of people agree with, nobody's going to write a story being like, I agree with this thing. Isn't apple pie delicious? Isn't, yeah, isn't apple pie delicious? And then another guy's like, oh, my God, apple pie is delicious. A salon isn't going to write, that guy at Slate is right about apple pie. Mm-hmm. So it creates this vacuum in which bad things get more traffic because there are all these referrals from people refuting it. So how can metrics address this situation? One start would be time on site. How long are you on this page? Are you gripped? You know, is this really useful information? You can use those old things. You can use uniques. You can use people who have shared it. But you've got to create a larger formula around, is this useful information? Return visitors, for example. That means there's trust. That means I liked an article from here before, and I'll come back tomorrow because I, I trusted what they said yesterday. So if you create a formula, then you can make a difference. This is a big thing. On the other hand, if you did all of those things that you suggest, the Slate story about how spooning is sexist would still make it through. It probably would. It would make it through, but it wouldn't be as valued. People always return to Slate. Slate's doing really well. You know, full disclosure here, my husband works at Slate. I love Slate. But they also are very good at optimizing. So... Would this story, which strikes at the heart of how you sleep, (laughs) not inspire sharing, time spent online, clicks, even though one could argue it was a big waste of time with no real information in it? Yeah, it's possible. I don't think it would be at the very top. A lot of these metrics that are floated in have sort of a do you like this button Mm -hmm. at the bottom. And that's kind of way a lot because that's a tangible click. That's a that's a physical action that you're taking to use your time. It can't just be the people who see it. It's got to be the people who either like it or appreciate it. And once we get to that mode, the internet's going to be a little bit better. It's going to be a little bit less in your face. And right now it's 
every day you wake up and some guy's yelling at you. <laughs> and I'm not sure it needs to be that way. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Ben Collins is a senior news editor at The Daily Beast. But no matter how mighty the metrics, there seems to be a commercial imperative, on the one hand, to make you happy, on the other, to ruin your day. And whether or not Upworthy wants to admit it, plenty of people seek out articles precisely because they are annoying. It's a ritual known as hate-reading, and Gothamist's Ben Yakis is a master of the form. In his series called The New York Times Presents Brunch Hate Reads, Yakis reads the New York Times style and real estate sections and lambasts them for what he sees as their disgraceful lack of self-awareness and their obsession with millennials, monocles, life coaches, and, you know, style. One of the first ones that I remember that really that really struck out was a story about dorm room chandeliers, about this being a hot <laughs> new trend that, you know, you're a nobody unless you have a chandelier in your dorm room. And that was... That was precious. That was truly <laughs> precious. Um, the one that I think of as being one of the most indicative of all the, the issues was called Creating Hipsterbia. And these were gentrifiers who moved to Brooklyn and then were being priced out by younger gentrifiers. And they were having families, so they're all moving to Westchester, which no one has ever done before. But the difference, I guess, here is that what they were doing is creating a little Brooklyn where they were moving. And that's what they were so excited about was they could walk down the street and see their local artisanal hand soap maker. <laughs> I do have one quote from that one because mm-hmm. it, it killed me. They found this guy, this futurism consultant. <laughs> to this day, I have no idea what that is. And I don't really want to know. I just want to imagine. And he said, Brooklyn is turning out to be the last three days of Burning Man. <laughs> And you focus most of your delightfully caustic attention onto a feature called The Hunt, which I know you think kind of sums up everything that's wrong with these kinds of stories in general. The Hunt is a feature where they follow a couple or somebody as they try to look for property around New York City. It's a feature which, in theory, is really fascinating and could really open a window into the struggles that New Yorkers are going through with the affordable housing crisis, with the various economic issues that we have, and unemployment. But instead, it seems more often than not to focus on these incredibly oblivious, wealthy people, someone who says something like, I couldn't possibly live anywhere but Brooklyn, or... (laughs) The idea of living in Brooklyn is just too horrifying. (laughs) These people who seem like cartoons. Do you like writing these? It depends. You know, some of them I find fun. I feel bad for some of the younger people because I realize that some people are not aware of how they come across. Mm -hmm. Especially like there was a 22-year-old kid last year, which was was one of the worst hunts I think I've ever seen. And he... (laughs) He was looking for a Tribeca place with the soul of a Greenwich Village place, which is so hard to come by. (laughs) And, you know, it all ends up being that really what he's looking for is a place with ginormous ceilings so he can fit his giant portrait of himself above his bed. I, I just was in shock that this person would have agreed that he could not see how he comes across and how other people might view him. Some of our producers (laughs) admit to reading these sections of the Times first, Mm -hmm. knowing that they will hate it. You write articles about them. What does it say about us? I I think part of it is that we, we, as as a community of New Yorkers, need to vent. We're just trying to eat. We're trying to afford our crappy apartment. And we see these stories that have no reflection, no relation to our lives. You just have to throw your hands up and laugh. You have to have some sort of outlet. You're just not willing to admit that you love, love, love these stories. You feel superior to these people. You know, I do think that I love them. Yeah, I think it's hard not to say that at a certain point. I mean, there's the schadenfreude sort of aspect of it. But I think it's also, I love the New York Times. I think that the New York Times is the most important newspaper in the world. And I expect more because they're so great. I don't want them to fall back on these lazy tropes and stereotypes that lesser places do. This particular episode is about feeling things. Upworthy says that empathy is its mission. It wants to inspire. And other sites like NPR are following suit. Where do you see your enterprise, Mm -hmm. the hate-reading brunch column, 
in this emotional ecosystem? It's probably a corrective. It's a balance of the force. Um, when you're dealing with things like Upworthy and these relentlessly positive sites and inspirational stories, kind of makes you want to puke a little bit. Even when the people involved are authentic and genuine and they have good stories, the way they're packaged, I, I can't even read that stuff. Okay, but I suggest that your role in this emotional media ecosystem involves something quite different. Don't you think that you're creating a a kind of perverse, profoundly ironic (laughs) goodwill among your fellow New York sufferers? Yeah, part of loving New York is complaining about it. And that doesn't mean that you hate it or that you're miserable. It means that that's part of the lifestyle and part of the joy that we get, that we get to complain about such a wonderful place. As you note, if you are a subject of one of these New York Times stories, you've, you've placed yourself directly in the bullseye. And you offer an advisory at the bottom of every one of your columns. Right. The PSA, the New York Times has a weakness for self-parodying, trend-baiting, masochistic millennial obsessing, and the perverse lifestyles of the rich. If a reporter with the real estate, style, or weekend sections approaches you about a story, just smile gently and run in the opposite direction. No one is forcing you to become representative of everything that everyone hates about New Yorkers. (laughs) Ben, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Ben Yakis is an editor for the online site Gothamist and creator of its Brunch Hate Reads series. That's it for this week's show. How did it make you feel? On the Media is produced by Kimmy Regler, Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, and Jesse Brenneman. We had more help from Alex Friedland and Dasha Lisitzina, and our show was edited by me. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Casey Means. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Support for On the Media comes from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.